KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This should be peak season for the NCAA, right? You've got college football heading into the home stretch, college hoops tipped off a few weeks ago. But beneath all that, if you know where to look, there's some troubling signs. We have a situation where everybody's sort of scrambling for the best deal for themselves. And that's why we are where we are today. Dr. Karen Weaver is an adjunct assistant professor and academic director at the University of Pennsylvania. She's an expert on the inner workings of college athletics and has been following some recent lawsuits involving the NCAA. From her view, the implications aren't promising. My guess is sooner rather than later, the uh, Power Four, Power Five, what's ever left, will break away, form their own organization, and they will likely take March Madness along with them. That leaves the rest of Division One, all of Division Two, all of Division Three, on the hook with a huge debt and no way to fund championships. Today on KYW News Radio in depth, Matt Leon's conversation with Karen Weaver. Look at the major labor issues that continue to confront the NCAA and what some impending court decisions could mean for the future of college athletics. For you, as someone who studies this, who knows how the sausage is made kind of behind the scenes at all the levels, what is the most interesting storyline? What is the most interesting development that you are tracking right now? Really in two different veins. One is legal and all the legal challenges that the NCAA is facing right now, and they are significant. And the other is media and the influence that media is having on decisions that are being made to align conferences, to change the NIT men's basketball tournament, and those kinds of things. So those are two things I'm paying attention to. So let's start with the the legal challenges. I mean, there's a lot to, to break down here. What's at the top of the list for you? We know that in several cases in the last couple of a few years, we've had athletes attempting to unionize through the National Labor Relations Act and joining a service union of some sort, either on or off campus, athletes have attempted to come to the table in a way that affords them collective bargaining rights. We saw that with Northwestern back in 2014, when the football team got to the point where they had received regional permission, but the national group never agreed to it. So we don't know what the result of that would have been, but we know that the players were interested. Fast forward to this fall, Dartmouth University's men's basketball team, ironically, the players, not the managers, decided that they would like to unionize as well. That stems from the culture of unionization that exists on that campus. A lot of their student groups are unionized at Dartmouth. It's very unique. So they are in the process of having their hearings unfold as to whether they have the right to organize and collectively bargain for their work work time and any any possible payment. Is there a big difference in what Dartmouth's bringing to the table than Northwestern was, or is it just a different climate for a move like this? How would you compare these two situations? Almost two different eras. So back then, it was such a, a such a shot out of the dark. It really came from Kane Coulter, the quarterback's, you know, labor studies class that he took. And he said, hey, why don't we do this? But there was no ecosystem around it. Today, if you look at all the strikes that we've had this summer, the SAG-AFTA strikes, the UAW strikes, Starbucks, I think, went on strike. There's this sense of awareness of uh, union rights, employee rights, and athletes' rights. 
and you color that with an increasing number of attorneys who are willing to take take plaintiffs on who want to fight these battles. And so there's more plaintiffs available today. And it also seems like the National Labor Relations Board back in, what was it, September 2021, their general counsel almost kind of put the flag in the ground and said, we're ready, come on down, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a distinct difference between presidential administrations. So while the previous administration might have put a stop sign up, this administration put the green flag down and said, bring me a case. And that's actually what, what has happened in the USC case, is that is a re- direct response to her call for plaintiffs. These are all kind of branches of the same tree. What's happening with the USC situation? So they had their first procedural hearing on in November 7th. And they had a chance to look at the request to do summary judgment from USC, the PAC-12, and the NCAA. And you might say to yourself, okay, what is that about? Because what the NLRB is saying is that the USC employees who are in a private employer, that's a really important distinction because public institutions can't be judged on this under NLRB law, but they're now saying that they also have employment guidelines, not only from USC, but from the NCAA and their rules and from the PAC-12 conference and their rules. So shortly in mid-late December, the NLRB is going to allow something called the Joint Employer Doctrine to take effect, which in effect brings in more layers of folks who provide oversight, guidance, and control of the athlete. And that's where this case sits right in the cusp of that is to, uh, who actually is controlling the athlete's time, energy, efforts, who controls the economic output for that. That's what the USC case is about. Who specifically with this USC case, who's bringing this? Like who's who's behind this? Well, there are a number of player action groups that have been looking for a suitable group of folks. USC seemed to be a logical one, I guess, because location, maybe because of where California is in the court system. Things tend to be a little bit more employee friendly in that environment. So it might have just been the perfect segue for for all of this. But I think it's really notable that they also wanted to try to get this into the court system as quickly as into the hearing system as quickly as possible, because we're coming up on a presidential election next year. So that could upend this whole focus that the NLRB has. What would victory look like in the USC case? Like if this thing proceeds and it goes the way that I think a lot of people think it might go, what does that look like? So what it would look like is to start with collective bargaining. And the athletes would have a seat at the table to be able to negotiate health and safety standards, practice times what they're asked to do outside of practice times on behalf of the university, like going to community events, going to fundraisers with big donors. The athletes feel they have little to no control over their time. And that is one of the indicators that someone's operating as an employee versus as a student who's chosen to play. And that's what they're really debating right now. One of the key sticking points is the USC Student Athlete Handbook and how the athletes are instructed to manage the media. There's debate as to whether they are guidelines and how they talk to the media and what they say, or whether they are rules. And that handbook will play a very important role in deciding if they're employees. So how does that 
compare with the Dartmouth situation? Are these two sides of the same coin? I think in some ways they are. I think there's two very different cultures on campus, though. I mean, the fact that Dartmouth has this longstanding culture of having students be in unions on campus, undergraduate students, so many campuses like Penn and Temple have graduate students in unions, but not undergrads. So I think that's sort of the unique commonality here. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Karen Weaver right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. We are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Karen Weaver. You mentioned media. And one of the things that jumped out in media is the hoops that college basketball is jumping through to keep TV happy with the NIT. Now, the NIT is an oh-by-the-way tournament. I know there's a lot of history, but people aren't filling out NIT brackets at most offices. you know. And it's basically for like the next 32 teams that didn't make the NCAA tournament. And the last couple of years, just to give people some background, the NIT was kind of a consolation prize for a lot of small conferences where if a team had a dominant regular season, won the regular season, but got up, got upset in the conference tournament, and it's a conference that only one team's going to the NCAA tournament, it's the automatic bid who wins the conference tournament, that regular season champ would get the NIT bid. Uh, and actually, I thought that made sense. It was kind of, it was it fit well. But that's going by the wayside because basically they just want to cater to the big conferences here. And this all seems just driven simply by TV and athletic departments just trying to squeeze more money out, right? Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt, but here's here's the catch. Here's what triggered it. If the, if the college football playoff truly establishes the $2 billion mark that they think they're going to get in television revenues for those 12 teams, those 12 teams will become even more of a brand, a market than they are now. Fox Sports came in and said, you know, there's some value here in these similar like teams like this playing basketball too. Perhaps we should have a postseason tournament. And that was like a, an alarm bell going off because what folks have been worried about is what happens if the Power Five breaks away and starts their own March Madness tournament. So I think in a way to block that and, and at least send some message to the TV companies that men's basketball outside of March Madness was willing to work with the media companies to try to generate more interest, they said, we're going to take away these AQs for these mid-major conferences. Now. I have a number of podcasts that I've talked to college presidents of what we call basketball-centric schools. We have a lot of them in the Philadelphia area. Their entire athletic budget philosophy is built on advancing into the March Madness tournament. And if they can't get in there, at least getting into the postseason through some great performance during the year that positions them for that. If that doesn't matter anymore, if they're not able to sell that to their president as a reason to justify spending in men's basketball, we're not even talking about women's basketball, then what are we playing for? Because if we don't have a shot in March Madness, our conference only gets one AQ, and we don't have a chance because we're not a name brand in the new NIT format, and the fact that none of the conference commissioners were asked for their opinions has really set the sport off and the organization off in the wrong direction. They are very concerned about this. I think if along the way there had been people of good faith that kind of looked at the landscape and said, 
you know what? This is really out of whack. We've got these coaches jumping from job to job, but we force the players to stay and we almost punish them by if they want to transfer, they have to sit out a year. We need to figure something out instead of this just, no, they're amateurs, they're kids, they're here for an education. And yes, but let's be real here. They're raising, in a lot of cases, millions of dollars for your school. It just seems to me every step of the way when there's like kind of a fork in a road and there's a chance for compromise or moving something and making it more player friendly, it's not just denied. It's almost denied with an eye roll, like how dare you? And that kind of leads, this pressure just keeps building. And as you know, with like anything, the pressure keeps building. Eventually it's going to get let out and it's going to get let out in a way that you can't control and you don't know where it's going to pop. And it just seems to me that in a lot of cases, the NCAA, its own worst enemy because of a, a lack of foresight here. Well, and it goes back to the Ed O'Bannon case, right, which was decided in 2014, which basically Ed O'Bannon was saying, look, you all are making money on my likeness in a video game where I'm playing men's basketball in my UCLA uniform. And you're not letting me get a cent because of your, your really restrictive amateur rules. They lost that case and they didn't adjust. And now all the other lawyers are coming back to to this and saying, oh, well, there's this example and this example. And that's exactly why we are here today, because we've had no flexibility, as you've said. We've had no recalibration in any of this. And it's been incredibly frustrating, I think, to people like you and I who care about college sports, because it has to evolve. It has to change. And it's been stubbornly refusing not to. What do you think is behind that? Is it a lack of imagination? Is it just a protect our part of the playground at at any cost and maintain our relevance? Like, what do you think is behind it? I mean, obviously there's money, but I mean, past that, I, I there's a lot of smart people that have worked at that office that are connected to that, and it's just amazing to me that no one's been able to kind of shake somebody and say, listen we need to give a little here or this whole thing's going to go sideways and we don't know what it's going to look like. Matt, this is one of the central research questions that I'm studying in my work at Penn. One of the things that I've been trying to struggle with is what organization exists, not a conference, not a national organization, not an accrediting organization that can exist for the greater good of college athletics, not the individual school's focus, not the conference's focus. The problem is, is boards and presidents, their fiduciary responsibility is to their institution, to do what's best for their institution. And the conference then, by extension, theirs is to do what's best for their conference. There's no one whose job who can stay in power and do their job is to look out for collectively the best interests of college sports. So what do you do? You hang on to what you've had, clearly way too long, and we have a situation where Everybody's sort of scrambling for the best deal for themselves. And that's why we are where we are today. What does this all look like in five years, do you think? What what is the most likely thing we could see, you know, when we're having our discussion in 2028? Like, what's the landscape look like? Well, I just had that question on my podcast. Uh, It's called Trustees and Presidents Managing Intercollegiate Athletics. It's on Apple if anybody would like to listen to it. With Michael McCann, who's a uh, a brilliant sports law reporter for Sportico and Sports Illustrated, I asked him that very question because I'm writing a book for college presidents about college athletics. So I said to Michael, help me look five years down the road, three years down the road. The fact that the Johnson case last week was certified as a class action case, which now 
moves the case forward in deciding whether athletes are allowed to receive what we call broadcast NIL. In other words, you're on TV. If the company makes money, the school makes money, the conference makes money, the athlete gets money. That's what broadcast NIL is. That the athletes are, are truly in, in, entitled to a piece of that. The class action status now allows Power Five athletes going all the way back to 2020. That's 14,500 athletes to share in the award that if this thing goes to the plaintiff's side, that they will get. The projections for that award are $4.2 billion because you're going back to when the action was filed in 2020. That will bankrupt college sports. That will bankrupt. And if it looks like college sports is going in that direction, then my my guess is sooner rather than later, the uh, Power Four or Power Five, what's ever left, that group of 30 or 40 schools will break away, form their own organization, partially to avoid the judgment in that case, to not have to be financially responsible for where that money comes from. And they will likely take men's basketball and maybe women's basketball, March Madness, along with them because of this trend from the NIT, what just happened with that. That leaves the rest of Division I, all of Division II, all of Division Three on the hook with a huge debt and no way to fund championships. That's incredibly bleak. I know. And that's but that's what Michael uh, seems to believe, that if things fall in the plaintiff's direction, because there's just been this denial for so long about where where this could go. And as he told me, there's so many really good antitrust lawyers who are interested in this right now. So they're turning their attention on it. Jeffrey Kessler, big name in antitrust and NFL football and the Ed O'Bannon case and the Austin case. And this, he wins. And these these we don't really have a good defense as to why we, after years, after years, after years, still continue to behave the same way. We think, the NCAA thinks, that the answer will come from Congress. And right now, it doesn't look like anything much is going to come from Congress, especially coming into an election year. So if the trial goes forward in 2024, which it's likely to, of course, there'll be a a decision. I'm sure there'll be appeals on both sides. But we could be looking at something very different in 2025 or 2026. So I want to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit. You talked a little bit about that Johnson NCAA in that last answer of what it could mean. Kind of explain the nuts and bolts of that case, because I don't think we touched on that in kind of our mosaic of all these different things coming together. So four athletes came forward. One of their last name is Johnson, but the most familiar to a listeners might be Sedona Prince, who was a women's basketball player at the University of Oregon who did the famous TikTok video during the 2021 March Madness saying, look at the men's weight room, look at the women's weight room, that type of thing. So those four athletes are the ones who brought the case, basically mimicking what the NFL allows their players to receive in their collective bargaining agreement. So every every year, every aspect of the revenues of NFL is negotiated with the players. And what lawyers are doing is they're looking at that model and saying, how does it apply to college athletics? Well, one way has not been touched is the broadcast revenues. So this case is bringing those into the mix. And that's what they decided last week was that not only those four athletes should be included in the class, but the 14,500 other Power Five athletes 
who played since 2020 should also be in that class. It is a huge decision. Is there appreciation in people you talk to from the college standpoint, what that case could hold? We're starting to see this pattern develop, but so many people who are in the trenches are just trying to get through the day to day. And my concern is also writing and talking to college presidents so people want to become, because this will impact their, their schools. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things that, that Michael advised me on my podcast was presidents right now should already be running financial models of what should happen if their athletes become campus employees. Like, what would that financial modeling look like if all of a sudden the 350 athletes in your athletics program all become employees? Not just the one who sell a lot, sells a lot of tickets, but all of them, because they're all subsidized to the same pattern in training, practices, games, that type of thing. And so get figuring that out, you have that at least as a plan for what they're going to need to think about when, if and when this happens. Once, if it does happen, then you've got to decide whether your school can afford that. And I'll bet you many schools will say, we can't. And so then what? Then what? That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.